Welcome to Navigating the Spectrum. I'm your host, Michelle Portlock, and I am happy to be here with you. Uh, Today, I will be interviewing my daughter, Brielle Williams, and I'm super excited that she agreed to do this with me. Um, Brielle is 18 years old and has previously been diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Welcome, Brielle. Good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Brielle, let's start this interview um, with you telling us about yourself. Uh, Well, as you said earlier, I'm 18 years old and I'm starting college this year, which is pretty exciting. I like to sing and I like to think that I'm good at it, and then I like to dance, and I know I'm not good at it. (laughs) So, what else do I like to do? You like to draw? Uh, Yeah, I have a pretty extensive bullet journal that I like to keep. I really enjoy the creative aspect and the uh, planner aspect of it, that I can customize my own schedule and my own planner inside of it, rather than having to find one that's good enough. Yeah, you're a good organizer. Um, in your own lane. (laughs) Wow, make fun of me on your podcast. (laughs) Um, so let's see. You also uh, like to bake? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, You have a lot of things that you like to do. So, um, there's a few things about yourself. So here's the big question for you. What has it been like living with autism? I feel like I'm kind of unqualified to answer this question. Because I don't know what it's like to not live with autism, nor can I really imagine not living with autism. I don't really know how deeply it impacts who I am. And so for me, it's just my normal life. It's just how I live my life. And my life is fine. Uh, Are there some things that you struggle with and have struggled with? I've never really been good with people. (laughs) Can you please elaborate? (laughs) (laughs) Again, I guess it's the same kind of question. I'm not really sure what is because of autism and what is just me, but I guess in general, I've never really been good with people. I'm not really someone who can sit down and talk to someone and kind of read the room. I Yeah, I've never been able to read the room with people. And so that's made social interactions really awkward, like 90% of the time when it's a new person. I think once people get to know me, it's just part of my charm, and they think I'm making a joke, but I really just don't understand what's going on. <laughs> Interesting. Maybe that's one reason why you won Class Clown. Did you win Class Clown? I did. Yeah, and as a senior, because uh, your interactions, do you think you used humor to kind of get through some of it? The I think I unintentionally used humor. I don't really go out of my way to try to be funny, but the things I say are just funny to other people (laughs) because of the way I say them. Yeah, it's true. That's true. Okay, so here are some... I have a lot of questions for you. Yes, I wrote them. (laughs) (laughs) So what would you like people to know about autism? A lot of the times when parents, when their kids get diagnosed with autism, it kind of feels like a death sentence to them or a oh no, something's wrong with my child sentence to them. And it's really not that bad. I mean, it does leak into every aspect of my life, which is why I can't really separate what parts of me are the parts from autism and which parts are the parts separated from it. 
but it's not something that makes my life all around worse. At least if it is, I can't picture my life being different, so it doesn't really matter to me hmm. if it makes my life worse or not, because to me, I just can't put myself in the place of another person who may not have autism, who may be like doing really great because of it. I just can't place myself there. Mm-hmm. When you say you can't place yourself there, it makes me think a lot of people say that the individuals diagnosed on the autism spectrum don't feel empathy. What would you say to that? I think people don't realize that there's a big difference between empathy and sympathy. And mm -hmm. empathy is being able to deeply emotionally connect and relate to other people. And sympathy is being able to feel sorry for other people, but not really being able to connect with it on an emotional level. Hmm. So would you say you feel empathy or sympathy? I definitely say I more feel sympathy. I've not in like a pity way, mm -hmm. just that's my, that's what empathy is to me. Because I, when I see someone that's sad, I can't think of, oh, well, if this had happened to me, I'd also feel sad. I can only think of, oh, well, this kind of similar situation happened to me once and it made me feel like this. Mm -hmm. So I guess I can kind of get it, but I can't really put myself in the place of the other person. I'm sure that other people are different with that. Other autistic people may have the ability to do that or may not. Just for me personally, I can't. Interesting. But you know, when you say that to me, I think there are a lot of neurotypical people who can't really empathize also. So it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem too uh, distant from neurotypical people. Many people who have children diagnosed on the autism spectrum believe that their child has a few, one or two or three exceptional gifts. What autism superpowers do you feel like you've been given? I think some things that I have that I probably wouldn't be able to do if I wasn't autistic or at least very driven is my reading ability. I read very fast to the point where even when you or Eric shows me something, you get angry about how <laughs> I just kind of look at it and know what it says. Pretend angry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> More like jealous. <laughs> so yeah, that's always been kind of a cool thing about me. I'm pretty sure John F. Kennedy had the same kind of thing where people would go, are you even reading that? And he was like, yeah. I'm done. And yeah. I know what it said. Yeah. So I can do that, which has been cool. When I was in Battle of the Books and mm -hmm. I waited until the last week to read any of the books and then I just kind of sat down and read all 10 books in like five days. So it's been very helpful for moments like that. <laughs> yeah. I can see how it would be. And yes, I am jealous of that skill. <laughs> I guess another thing is... When I focus on something, it kind of is like all I can focus on. I know mm -hmm. that like hyper fixating is a big thing, mm -hmm. but it, I don't think it's annoying like some people do. I think to me, you know, when I hyper fixate, sometimes I will be like, okay, I have this idea and then I'll, you know, write a whole short story in one sitting or I will write an entire song like completely finish it in 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that there are non-autistic people who can also do that. But to me, I don't think I would be able to if I wasn't autistic. And I guess that kind of comes down to the what is a savant 
Hmm. versus an autistic person and like do you have to be autistic to be a savant and it's no you don't you don't have to be autistic to be you know very gifted and you know to have a high IQ and have a special talent but it comes in handy when you are autistic it's a lot you know easier it just kind of comes to you mm-hmm. now it's probably important to share with people listening that when you received your diagnosis you were diagnosed with level one autism spectrum disorder, which is considered high functioning autism. But I would add that although there's level one, level two, level three, it doesn't necessarily mean you are boxed in with a very specific set of skills and non-skills because there's a lot of overlap. A lot of kids that are uh, nonverbal um, and on the autism spectrum can also uh, also have really great skill sets in other areas. It doesn't, you're not pigeonholed into one place just because you have a specific diagnosis. The purpose of those level diagnosis are really to get you the services that you need. But most people on the autism spectrum don't really want to say, I'm high functioning, I'm low functioning, I'm, they just say, I am autistic. Yeah, definitely the level you are diagnosed with versus high functioning and low functioning is all based on your IQ score. And high functioning autistic is like, I am autistic and I don't also have an intellectual disability, which used to be determined by an IQ under 70. And low functioning is, I am autistic and I do have an intellectual disability. And I think when you think of an autistic person, your mind immediately goes to low functioning. My kid is going to need to be in special education classes and, you know, they're going to really be set back. But then you look at people who are more low functioning level three autistic people and they're also doing, you know, great things mm-hmm. like Cody Lee. I guarantee he is a savant. Mm-hmm. the winner of America's Got Talent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was a blind, assumedly more low-functioning mm-hmm. autistic person. Mm-hmm. And he still achieved great things. And I don't really think a level, like you said, or your IQ or functioning ability has anything to determine whether or not you can succeed or whether or not you can learn certain skills. I agree with that. The levels aren't solely based on IQ, but that is a part of that for sure. So um, thank you. That was good information to share. Uh, Is there anything that the neurotypical community needs to work on as far as autism is concerned? I was actually talking with my friend about this the other day, and she brought up something that I hadn't really thought about, and it was that I had to kind of rewire the entire way I work and like change how I function as a human being in order to like fit in and be seen as like normal by neurotypical people like Mm -hmm. for me a big thing is stimming I bounce my legs a lot before my diagnosis of autism my dad used to joke that I have restless leg syndrome (laughs) because he also bounces his leg and so mm-hmm. he was like, oh, it's hereditary, ha, ha, ha. And I was like, autism's hereditary. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> but um, no, that's, that's been a big deal is people have been like, can you stop doing that? And the answer is no, I can't. Like physically, I cannot stop doing it. And it like, yes, I can. 
But when I do stop, I get like really nervous and there's nowhere to put myself. And I had lots of therapists try to be like, oh, well, if you use this technique, you won't have to do it anymore. And that was, you know, really annoying. It's like, no, this is something I have to do. Mm -hmm. Other people should just adjust adjust to that that's not something i should have to change it's a similar i fidget with my hands sometimes by kind of twisting to, them yeah twisting them in the air mm-hmm. yeah there's no video for this i don't know why i'm still showing <laughs> the audience as if they can see it you can hear it there's what it sounds like against the microphone <laughs> oh, my but uh no i was doing that in the library one day with a group of friends and this other boy came by and he was like what are you doing and i was like oh i just have a twitch in my hand because that's way easier to explain than me like i have autism and when you have autism you need to stim because your body has a lot of anxiety and energy and it doesn't know what to do with it and so this is one way so i just told him i had a twitch and he goes looks fake and Mm. i was like not your place to comment on what twitches are real or fake you look fake yeah i was just like okay (laughs) and all my friends kind of like looked up at this guy and were like dude but it was a very weird like i'd never been approached by someone who had tried to call you out on something call me out on stimming i've had people ask me to stop tapping my legs and usually i can but then when i stop tapping my legs I have to like shake my hands. And so mm-hmm. I wasn't tapping my legs because it was shaking our library table. Mm-hmm. But I've never had someone who I like only kind of know come up to me and be like, why are you doing that? <laughs> and then be like, stop doing that because it's none of their business. You know, like as a neurotypical sure. person, if you see someone, you know, twitching stimming. or shaking, stimming, mm-hmm. I guess, but it's hard to see someone or understand what stimming is. I think the most common one that people get made fun of is rocking. There's rocking, flapping your arms, twitching your legs. It's, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not something for you to comment on. It's, if it makes you uncomfortable, look away. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know. Right, it's not the person who has autism that should be adjusting in that situation. It's you. Although, I will say, if the table's shaking and I'm trying to write... Yeah, typically, (laughs) if it's something like that and you ask the person, hey, do you think you could do something else or do you think you could move your leg a little? That's different, but if I'm sitting in my desk shaking my leg and you look and it bothers you, don't look at it anymore. You know, that's not something (laughs) Mm -hmm. I have to change to make you feel comfortable. That's something you have to change. How do we teach people that? How do we teach that? There isn't a lot of talk about autism in school. I think the first time I remember hearing about autism, that wasn't just, oh, the kids in special ed have autism, Mm -hmm. was I was in seventh grade and we had to do a research project. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to read this book, Mockingbird, that I'd had on my shelf for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it was about this girl with high-functioning autism. And I read it and it made me go, oh, crap. (laughs) And then... Two because and a half related years. to yeah. the character. And then two and a half years later, they were like, surprise, that's actually you, congrats. But it was, you know, the first time I was able to read a book and actually be like, oh, yeah, like that's that's me, which comes back to the sympathy and empathy thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like autistic people really can feel empathy, but only for people whose situations they actually understand. So you're saying like other autistic kids could understand one another. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes sense. That yeah. makes sense because oftentimes we empathize with people who we've had similar experiences with. Exactly. But going back to the original question, it was the first time I'd really heard of someone being autistic that wasn't like 
debilitating and didn't, you know, for lack of a better term, make them seem stupid. Because, You're talking about the book you read. Yeah, because okay. seventh grade me was like, oh, those kids are dumb. And obviously I've, you know, grown through that and mm -hmm. been like, no, some of those kids are the smartest kids I've ever met, mm -hmm. but they just can't express themselves the same way everyone else can. But Good I feel point. like if we teach kids from an earlier age what autism is mm -hmm. and how it affects other people, mm -hmm. they won't be, people won't be so quick to kind of belittle you mm -hmm. for the way you're acting. And I think Sesame Street has done a good job implementing an autistic Muppet, Julia, in their show who tries to kind of teach children what having autism is like and why sometimes when all the kids are yelling in the classroom, there's another kid freaking out about seemingly nothing, but for them it's the noise or why sometimes mm -hmm. kids will have to flap their arms or kids won't look you in the eye when they talk to you. It's not because they're weird. It's because there's a problem. And a lot of times with the kids I was in high school with and middle school with, they never had to learn about it. Because, you know, when it's not something that directly impacts you, when it's not like a friend or family member that has it, you don't go out of your way to learn about it. It's true. Even in my psychology class, when we touched on abnormal psychology or like, you know, mental disorders, illnesses, we talked about autism for one page. It was one page of the whole book mm -hmm. and depression was like 12. Wow. And, you know, obviously depression impacts, I believe it's one in three teenagers. Could I could be right. I could I don't be know wrong. Yeah, I, don't I don't know. know the exact. And autism only impacts one in 54 people. Yeah. Between one in 54 to one in 59. Yeah. But it's still more, I'd say autism for most people is more debilitating than most other mental illnesses. Because when you see, when you say I have anxiety, yes, you're nervous as someone who has anxiety. Yeah. It like deeply impacts me, mm -hmm. but you can get medicated for that. You mm -hmm. can learn coping techniques to help you with that. And you can't really do that for autism. You can't really be like, Oh, I'm learning to cope with my autism. It's just kind of something you have. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. Because a lot of times as parents, we're looking at ways to help our children progress. I do believe just like neurotypical kids, there's progression in autism. Kids progress and move forward. I've seen it um, uh, in you. And like when you talk about anxiety, you, I hope this is okay. I can delete it if you don't like it, but you have an actual clinical anxiety diagnosis and that they call them... I mean, it's a dual diagnosis. It was a triple diagnosis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Autism. Anxiety and depression. And depression. But a lot of times, depression and anxiety go hand in hand. Yeah. So you've had both of all of those diagnoses. They're called comorbid diagnosis, and which is kind of a weird name. Yeah, with morbidity. <laughs> yeah, comorbid. But that's what it's called. So... We, you've got those multiple diagnoses, so you're right. You can't necessarily medicate for autism specifically, but when you have dual diagnosis, you can medicate for the depression. You can medicate for the anxiety, and I'm not, I'm not saying do it. I'm saying it's an option. 
Yeah, like I'm medicated for my anxiety and depression, but that doesn't help with my autism at all. That's a whole separate thing. Right. You still have I still stimming. have Yeah, I mm-hmm. still have all of these problems and I think a lot of parents mm-hmm. especially want there to be some like cure for autism. Mm-hmm. But that would be like me trying to find a cure to your personality, you know? (laughs) Yeah, please don't. (laughs) Or me going in and being like, hmm, what makes this person cool and interesting? Let's get rid of it. Because (laughs) it's basically who you are. Mm -hmm. It's not I am a person with autism. It's I am an autistic person, you know? Mm. I, this is who I am, and it's not all of who I am, but it's a big part of me. I say it in the same way as like, I have blue eyes. I have autism. I see what you're saying. It encompasses all of who you are. Yeah. But the depression and the anxiety, we can treat those. Yeah, those Mm -hmm. can get better and those can go away. Mm -hmm. But autism can't. And it's not something I would want to get away. You know, if there was a cure for autism, I wouldn't want it. Oh, that's good. What What I will say about autism, there are some... I don't, I don't know if I call it characteristics or traits, but there are some things like children that are nonverbal and you can work to teach children how to communicate, whether that be through pictures or sign language or verbal communication um, or even electronic communication. You can teach an autistic child to communicate. You can also teach an autistic child uh, manners and boundaries and social skills. You can teach all of those things just like a neurotypical child. And there's progress in that. It might be a little trickier, might be a little less natural in some areas, but it's teachable. Yeah. Uh, Here's a cool trick a teacher taught me in fifth grade. I'm pretty sure She was saying it just to me, but as to not embarrass me, she gave it to the whole class, which was nice. She's, yeah, she's a G. (laughs) But she taught me, before giving presentations, one of the things we were going to be graded on was our eye contact with the crowd. And I have never enjoyed looking people in the eye. It's just something that makes me feel weird and uncomfortable. So it's not something I, like, go out of my way to do. So she taught me... If you don't want to look someone in the eye, look at them in their eyebrows and they won't be able to tell the difference. And that changed public speaking for me forever. I'm no longer afraid to talk in front of crowds. It was like a snap of the finger. Why didn't I think of that thing? (laughs) So yeah, there's teachable things, but not, you shouldn't be like, it's polite when you look people in the eye, do Mm -hmm. it. Or, you know, I've always, I've never liked handshakes and that's like a big deal in our church is to shake people's hands Mm. and it's never and in the professional world. Yeah. And it's never been like for me before all of this happened, the answer was just shake their hand. Mm -hmm. But afterwards it's become people kind of know now to fist bump me Mm -hmm. instead of shake my hand. So it's like changing. You don't have to teach them the exact skill, teach them like a trick that helps them get around it. Because Mm -hmm. for me, If the advice was just, you know, look people in the eye, Mm -hmm. that's not getting me anywhere. That's just making me feel uncomfortable. Sure. So you have to make some adjustments uh, for our children on the autism spectrum. I will say the beauty of looking at looking at people's faces is you can see expressions. um, Although it is, and I think that's, well, I know that's one of the reasons why it's a little trickier for 
people on the autism spectrum, particularly children on the autism spectrum, to note how people are feeling because they don't love looking at people in the eyes, generally. Yeah, or even when you do look someone in the eye as an autistic person, it's you don't really get any emotion from it. I usually just gotcha. listen to tone of voice. Oh, that's good. That's kind of how I figure out. Obviously, if someone's smiling, I know they're happy, but like mm -hmm. right now you have a neutral expression on your face. Mm -hmm. I'm really angry inside. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know. <laughs> but listening to your tone of voice, it's a little bit lighter and more upbeat, just letting me know, okay, you know, she is not in a bad mood right now. It's not... Obviously, if someone is frowning, I know they're upset. Or if yeah. someone is like furrowing their brow, I know they're angry at me. But it's mm -hmm. really tone of voice for you, for me. And I would assume other people because it's just not really something I pick up on. And I just thought that was a me thing until they were like, that's an autistic thing. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but that's a good point to make. I think that's a really important thing for parents to understand as they're trying to help their children navigate this world yeah and that's one reason why i don't believe in baby talking to mm -hmm. autistic people sure i think a lot of the times except if they're a baby yeah yeah <laughs> i think a lot of the times when you see someone who is a little more special needs or a little more disadvantaged than me people especially at my high school who didn't really know better would talk down to them like mm -hmm. they were elementary school kids mm -hmm. And it really made me feel uncomfortable. It's something I actually senior year finally went around calling people out for and was like, why do you talk to them like they're a baby? They're the same age as you. Mm -hmm. Because that doesn't help them understand. If anything, it makes it worse. Because when you're looking at someone and you're talking to them like this, like they don't get it and you have like a weird facial expression and your tone of voice says neutral, they're not going to get it. Whereas mm. if you talk like a normal person... They might, you know, it's just... Interesting point to make. Yeah, it's not something... There's in, no inflection in a baby voice. Yeah, you just <laughs> kind of talk like this to them. Hey, I know that you don't understand what's going on, but... And it's like, okay, I'm hearing the words, but I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Interesting. I like that point. So I kind of think we've hit this a little bit with what we've just talked about, but how do you... How do parents help children who have autism spectrum disorder? been diagnosed with ASD? I think the first step is getting all that official documentation papers mm -hmm. because you're going to need it for schools. So you're talking about testing. Yeah. Okay. get If you think they are, don't just say they are. Mm -hmm. Go get them tested at a place, even if it's just their doctor saying it, and get mm -hmm. it in writing so that they can get their special accommodations. A big deal for me in middle school was I didn't have any like official diagnosis, right. so I couldn't get any help. Right. You weren't diagnosed until how old, Brielle? 14 and a half. 14 and a half. And it took us a long time to get to that place. We had done multiple therapies. We even did neurofeedback. Yeah, that's a sham. <laughs> I think it works for some people. It definitely didn't work for As you. As someone who's done it, it's a total scam. I have no <laughs> clue what it was doing. I'd look at the screen and they'd be like, make the fish jump. And I'd be like, how do you make the fish jump? And I just kind of look at the screen and eventually one would jump and she'd like write it down. And I'm like, I didn't change anything. Well, <laughs> so you know, not, you know how she feels about neurofeedback, <laughs> but I've, I have talked to people who it have worked, it has worked for not necessarily children on the autism spectrum, but I would love to hear from you if it's worked for your child. Yeah. Let me know what I was doing wrong. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't you. 
Yeah, uh, so maybe it was the lady putting the glue on my head. That wasn't glue. <laughs> so, so... But yeah, official papers was what we were talking okay, about. Okay, because you're saying, I think where you're going with this is early diagnosis is really critical to get your child yeah. the help that they need. And I think a big deal is also getting them an IQ test with it. I know ours, it came with the official diagnosis, and obviously IQs are kind of a sham, kind of not. I have like very neutral feelings about IQs where I don't think they tell you how smart a person is. They more tell you how good a person is at recognizing patterns and processing things mm -hmm. rather than... It's kind of good test-taking skills. Yeah, rather than how smart someone is. It's gotcha. not a measure of that. I think it's an arbitrary measure. But getting their IQ test done, because I know a big thing for me was I didn't communicate well with other people, so I was never given opportunities in elementary school or middle school. I wasn't put in the math class I wanted to be in. I was kind of placed with people who processed at a lower speed than me, mm -hmm. which isn't bad. It was just I was bored all the time. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't allowed to be in the gifted programs because I didn't work well with other people and I didn't really socialize well. And so they thought, oh, that must mean she's not gifted. Gotcha. Where in actuality, I just didn't understand socializing. So mm -hmm. I think that's very important. But then you pushed hard. You yeah, I took college classes in middle school so that I could be ahead in math and get to the classes I needed to be in, mm -hmm. which was so dumb because then the next year they just let kids who wanted to be in the class be in it, but they wouldn't let me be in the class. So I don't know. Well, she figured it out. Yeah. She excelled. <laughs> she did well. I so, finished calculus. Yes, you did. <laughs> so Brielle, that leads me to ask you the question of what are your future plans? I mean, obviously the plan is subject to change, blah, 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 but I like to plan my whole life out. And so I have my whole life planned. <laughs> I, um, I'm going to major in psychology mm -hmm. with hopefully a kind of... Minor? No. Oh, emphasis. An emphasis, yeah. Gotcha. So the plan is to major in psychology with an emphasis on abnormal psych and research psychology, so kind of research in the abnormal area because your senior year you get to pick a focus and so I would like to focus on researching abnormal psychology and then I'd like to minor in Anglo-American literature which is a fancy way of saying English without <laughs> having to learn another language so British and American English and then depending on how much I like the research stuff if it's something I fall in love with then, you know, I'll obviously go on to get a master's and hopefully a PhD studying psychology. I think the big goal for me in that area would to be to create a new mood stabilizer. I feel like there aren't a lot of options for that. When I went on that, there were kind of two options. Hmm. And it's not something people seem to be like in a hurry to create, you know, just creating new medication. And if I decide it's fine, but it's not for me, this is the big goal, is to then go to law school and study constitutional law, where I hope to then, you know, clerk for either one of the federal court districts or big goal, the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. where my plan is to go into politics and the government and either be a senator for whichever state I end up living in. It'll probably be back in Colorado sadly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or to be a Supreme Court justice and work my way up by being a federal judge. Love it. So those very are, big plans. <laughs> those are very big plans, but I think you 
the sky's the limit for you. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> so uh, my question is, can, if a parent said, okay, Brielle, it sounds like you have the ability to be successful. Can my autistic child be successful? Every person is born with, I think, the same amount to succeed. Of course, there are other limiting factors like poverty or skin color, things like that, that really do place a disadvantage on you. And I'd say having, you know, a learning slash mental disability is one of them. But that doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means it's a little bit harder, mm -hmm. but it's still something you can do. And definitely don't limit yourself. Or if you're a parent, don't try to, don't think your child is limited based off of one diagnosis. So would you say to parents, provide your children with multiple opportunities, give them experiences, allow them to find their strengths? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how you'd do that, but as a kid, I definitely tried lots of different things. Mm -hmm. Before, at like age five, I was in a play and decided I wanted to be a singer for the rest of my life, <laughs> and I pretty much have, but my parents, you know, mm -hmm. I think I played every sport for one season. Mm -hmm. You hated them all. I hated every single one of them, mm -hmm. and I danced for seven or eight years, mm -hmm. which I loved, but I was never good at. <laughs> well, that's not true. You're a good tapper. I, I, I do like tap dance I, I enjoy it mm -hmm. but I think the idea it's the same thing you would do with a normal kid normal no the idea is that it's the same <laughs> thing you would do with a neurotypical kid mm -hmm. is that you just kind of let them do what they want until they find something they love mm -hmm. and so yeah let your kids explore everything and don't make them do what you want them to do I've seen a lot of kids specifically in like theater and music whose parents are kind of living vicariously through them. Gotcha. And if, you know, I would say that's fine if you're neurotypical, but it's not fine. Knock it off, parents. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's definitely allowing your child to explore all interests and being completely supportive of it. I remember last summer I decided I was obsessed with fish and mm -hmm. I still am. And so I had in our biology class, we experimented on goldfish, mm -hmm. and I begged my teacher to make sure I got the fish we had experimented on, because mm -hmm. he was like the one brown goldfish, and mm -hmm. so I named him Chicken Nugget. Anyway, from that, <laughs> rest in peace, Chicken Nugget, you lived a good year. <laughs> and, you know, from that, I kind of became more interested in all types of fish, so mm -hmm. it kind of change from just goldfish to everything. And now if you ask me a question about, you know, in-home aquarium fish mm -hmm. or ask me a question about like the fish they sell at PetSmart, I could probably answer it for you. And that's like a weird niche mm -hmm. that I think if my parents weren't so loving. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I might have, they might have just kind of dismissed it and been like, okay, whatever. But, you know, they kind of let me indulge in it. And I had a tropical fish tank mm -hmm. for like a year and a half. Just we had to get rid of it a couple of weeks ago because I'm moving and I can't bring it with me, mm -hmm. which made me very sad. And I don't want to take care of the fish. Yeah. <laughs> but don't worry. They're rehomed. We did not kill them. <laughs> but it's stuff like that or like being a space or a dinosaur kid. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people talk about that. And I have a cousin who's a Pokemon kid right now. Mm -hmm. And he... You know, he's very, mm -hmm. very into it. And his parents are have been very good at, like, allowing them and him to have that, experience. have that experience and have that interest with it. 
Well, I think that I, I love that, those responses that you just gave. What I will say about success is that we need to view what success is according to our child. For some of our children, it may be learning the basic functioning skills um, of uh, to function in this world. And that is success in its own right. That's true success. And for some of these kids, it may be a musical success. They may uh, be artistically inclined. They may have their various, they will have their various areas um, of strengths. But also uh, some of these kids' success is how deeply they love and how happy they make those around them. So we need to be careful with how we define success. Yeah, I mean, I kind of delved off of success and into more interest. Mm -hmm. But I think success is not about, you know, how much money you have or how much you accomplish Mm -hmm. as far as a, like, history will remember me sphere. It's how much you accomplish with yourself and how happy you are. Mm -hmm. That is what success is. Mm -hmm. And so every person can succeed if you let yourself. And I think a lot of that success for autistic people comes from their interests. Like for instance, the creator of Pokemon was actually, well, I don't know if he's still alive or not, was actually autistic. And he created Pokemon because he was so obsessed with finding and learning about bugs And so he wanted to make it something other people could love. And there came Pokemon. And that was success that came from an interest of his. I love that you know that. And I'm actually not surprised you know that. (laughs) (laughs) So we will... One of Brielle's special gifts is music. Are you going to make me sing? Yes. I'm going to make Brielle sing for you because... One of her special interests was music. And what I will say about music is I truly believe for her, music helped her overcome and work through a lot of the struggles that she had. When she would feel anxious, she'd disappear to her room and play her guitar or her ukulele and sing. And I think as a parent, I observed how it helped her level out and bring some peace into her life. So I want to, her to share with you some of what has brought her some joy. So Brielle, I made her grab her ukulele. What song are you going to sing for us? Uh, which song do you want me to what sing? What was the song I had you play earlier? Somewhere for the Rainbow? No. Oh, La Vie on Rose? Yes. Okay. I'm going to play La Vie on Rose, but before I do that, I want to kind of elaborate on what my mom was saying. And for me, music brings me a sense of flow, which is the mental state you get in when you kind of aren't worried about anything else and you're focused, which is something I learned about my sophomore year. And so whenever I feel kind of worried or nervous, I turn to, you know, playing an instrument or I'll go for drives where I'll just like sing music because it puts me in like a good mindset. And I'm sure for other autistic children, they have their special interests that they turn to when they need to feel that flow and get rid of their anxiety. And so definitely, if you're a parent listening to this, definitely encourage that and find ways for them to do that. Interesting. Thank you, Brielle. And here's my song. Close and hold me fast. This magic spell you cast. This is Le'Veon Rose. When you kiss me, heaven.
given size And though I close my eyes I see Le'Veon Rose When you press me to your heart I'm in a world apart A world where roses bloom And when you speak angels Sing from above soul to me and life will always be